Well, dear folks, we have been entrusted with the greatest story uh, ever told about the greatest Savior who's come to offer uh, the greatest pardon the world has known. And isn't it wonderful to be part of a church uh, continuing to be in the process of sharing that great, great story? Could I encourage you as a relatively new now member of the church Would you continue to stay in the process of supporting this church because this church intends to continue to stay in the process of extending the greatest story ever told? Well, we're grateful to Roy Gale, who is the uh, missions minister at our church, and he has the wonderful privilege and responsibility of setting the pace for us in sharing this great story here, there, and everywhere. But the task is The privilege is ours, isn't it? Most of us are here because someone communicated to us the story of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And embracing that by faith has transformed our lives, made us new creatures. We'll never look back. We're on our way home. We're just passing through. And we have to spread the wealth. We're glad to be together tonight and on Sunday. We come together, I hope, to encourage one another, uh, but to encourage one another then to face outward, not to hoard the wealth. We really, really have to be mindful of opportunities given to us, like at City Fest. I'm not sure if it was 200,000 in attendance or 300,000. The longer the interview went on, the more people showed up. Let's just say lots of folks. And what was really good is that many, many responded to Brother Louis Palau's invitation to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it wonderful that Sagemont Church had a key role in it? Its people got out of the salt shaker, didn't come to church, but functioned as the church. Well, we're going to be sharing with you, Lord willing, in subsequent Wednesday nights more great story moments because we want to get you and I and all of us aroused and interested in telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I being overly dramatic to tell you there is no hope without him? It's not drama, is it? It's reality. There's good news. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's unchangeable. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's immutable. He's the God of all grace and comfort. He suffered and died so that the penalty of sin would not fall upon us. He's going to come again because he won victory over the last enemy, death. And at the second coming, he'll come not as lamb but as lion of Judah. And there'll be a time when everyone in one way or another will bow and acknowledge him to be Lord. I think it's best to do so now voluntarily in a response to his grace. Otherwise, later we'll have to bow in response to his holy wrath. So there's good news now, pardon and forgiveness and adoption through the Lord Jesus Christ. Greatest story ever told. Thank you, Roy for leading us in this area, and Kyle Sapa also, who helped us put together this wonderful, wonderful uh, video. 
Well, uh, I want to talk to you about the Bible tonight again, because the Bible is the bedrock of our faith. See, our faith cannot be informed. It's only based on speculation without scripture. If God, I mentioned earlier, chose not to communicate himself to us, we would be left with guesswork, with reference to the character of God. But thank him, we don't have to guess. He's a God of revelation. He desires to be known. He wants to have relationship with us, and he has expressed himself quite clearly in the Bible. So we began a series some weeks ago talking about the Bible as special revelation, and then we spoke about canon and what is part of the Bible and what is not and what some of the yardsticks are determining canonicity. And tonight, we'll get a little deep, but I think it's potentially helpful if you pay attention. Let's talk tonight about two new doctrines, the doctrine of inspiration and the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Now, by the doctrine of inspiration, all we mean is that the books of the Bible, though written by men, were inspired by God. So the Bible is divinely inspired. This is known as the doctrine of inspiration, and we're not making it up. This is the claim it makes for itself. Can you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? 2 Timothy 3.16, a verse which I'll bet is familiar to most of you. And if you're reading it for the first time, wonderful. This is a great, great verse of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. I'll tell you what, let's just stop there. All Scripture is inspired by God. How much Scripture? Yeah, see, all, all, all. It means the same in Greek as it means in English. All means the totality of Scripture has the character of being inspired by God. So when we read the Bible, it's not just the thoughts of the writers that are inspired. No, it's every word. So have you heard the term verbal inspiration? Whether you know it or not, we believe that here. We believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, meaning it's not just its concepts and thoughts which are inspired. No, every single word of scripture is divinely inspired verbal inspiration, and not just parts of the Bible are inspired, all of it, and so we use the term plenary. So we here believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Now that's a word not oft used, but if you go to a conference, sometimes you'll read the schedule. There'll be small group breakout sessions, but then there'll be the general large group meeting. They'll call that the plenary session. That's the one that everyone is supposed to go to. It just means all. So we believe every word of Scripture is inspired, and we believe all of it, the totality of Scripture is inspired. Hence, 
the doctrine of the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Some people will say that the Bible is not entirely true. It merely contains truth. We are not those people. We believe it is all true based on 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. So how did it happen that God took humans, relatively ordinary ones, and through them managed to communicate the 66 books of the Bible? I mean, did the human authors, were they caught up in some sort of a trance, kind of an altered state of consciousness? Were they hypnotized, mesmerized? Were they rendered unconscious. No. Somehow, God breathed, and that's the word for inspiration, God breathed out of himself and into them exactly what he wanted to come out. So he used their human personalities and languages and distinctives and cultures and still managed to so superintend the process that the product which emanated by him through them is exactly what he wanted for us to have down to this very day. That's called divine inspiration. He did not overcome nor nullify their personalities with which they wrote scripture. In fact, he utilized it. And doesn't that make reading the Bible intensely interesting? When you read Romans written by Paul, you see it written as if by a lawyer presenting a logical case for Uh, grace and justification and sanctification. But then you could read the songbook of the Bible, written most of it by King David, and you have a more of an emotional kind of experience. So some of the characters of the Bible who wrote it are a little more cognitive, head-oriented. Others are a little more heart-oriented. They share from an emotional point of view. Some are quite sophisticated and educated. Others are agricultural types. Some write poetry. They're creative and intuitive. And others write historical narrative. They're concrete and down-to-earth. They're fact-oriented. And so when you read 40 books of Scripture, you see a common thread and a common theme. It's redemption all the way through from Genesis to the final book, which tells us about victory in Jesus. But all along, you see truth communicated. You see, under inspiration, but through human personality. This is how it took place. No, they weren't in some altered state of consciousness. They were not hypnotized, mesmerized. They were not robotic automatons. They were people, peeps, like you and me. And they wrote scripture because God breathed it in them. And we have it down to this very day. It's called the doctrine of inspiration. You ought to believe in it. It's important. Now, the doctrine of inspiration is mentioned not only in 2 Timothy 3.16, but also, take a look at this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Take a look. It's great. Wonderful passage. It explains a lot. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. 
21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. The biblical authors didn't make up the Bible. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So there you have once again the doctrine of divine inspiration of the scriptures. If you ask me if I know specifically how it all worked out, the answer is, of course, I do not. I just know that sovereign God, who was able to do all things, who spoke the very world into existence in the power of his word, surely has at his disposal the capacity to communicate words and to preserve it with accuracy, even though it came through human authors down to this very day, so that you and I can read it and be changed, be redeemed, be saved by coming to read and believe the greatest story ever told. Folks, when you read the Bible, you're on solid ground. You ought to trust it. It's divinely inspired. When we use the word inspired, we're not talking about the kind of inspiration that, say, William Shakespeare experienced when he was moved to write Hamlet. No, same word used in a different sense. This means that God really put into them and drew out through them the exact message he wanted for us and all people groups to have available down to this very day. Now, since the Bible is inspired by God, and it is, and we're not going to put it to a vote, (laughs) we don't vote on Bible truth. We accept it, or we pay the penalty of rejecting it. So, So since the Bible is inspired by God, let me make this statement. It is without error in the original writings. So I guess what I'm saying to you is that the doctrine of inspiration is the foundation for the second doctrine, which we'll talk about this evening, the doctrine of inerrancy. I guess what I'm saying is God tells the truth. And if God inspired scripture, and since God tells the truth, then that which God inspired is true. But I made a statement. I was hoping you didn't hear it. Uh, I, I mentioned that the Bible is inerrant without error in the original writings. Ah. So let's see by a show of hands. Let's see. How many people here have uh, a copy, whole or part, of the original, uh, uh, any 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 book of the Bible, the actual original. I mean, maybe you don't have it here because you wouldn't be carrying it around. It's too valuable. It's at home. Do you have it like at home? Would you raise? Yeah. You see, that's the. Um, okay, so we have we have one person <coughs> in in the, in the uh, in the room, and there's always one in in the crowd, which is why it's very dangerous to ask you people questions. Okay, look, here's the deal. Nobody has the original manuscripts of any Bible book. None are in existence. Extant is the word 
We don't have any extant autographs, manuscripts, text, copies of any book in the Bible. So for me to make the statement that everything in the Bible is inspired and therefore without error in the originals sounds like a kind of a goofy, ridiculous, what are you making that statement? Because we don't even have any of the uh, originals. Well, we only have we only have copies. Well, we just wait a second. Let's talk about something called the process of transmission. How was the word of God transmitted from the originals down to this very day in our good translations? By the way, in subsequent weeks, Lord willing, we'll talk about Bible translations. Not to offend anybody, heavens, read the Bible in any translation you want, but uh, it might be helpful for you to know how did we get our translations? What are the strengths and weaknesses? Are some better than others? So we'll get to it, Uh, but for now, let's talk about the process of transmission from the original communication written down, word of God, to to what we have today, just just the copies. Now, can I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3. By the way, the Bible uh, can be scrutinized. It stands up, (laughs) Uh, even against very close scrutiny. Here we go, Romans chapter 3. And I want you to feel free to change your seat at any time. I just want you to be comfortable. Just be... Okay. So do you have it? Romans chapter 3. Look, then what advantage, we're in verses 1 and 2. What advantage has the Jew? I, I really feel led to say. <laughs> we're, we're much better looking. But, but that, you shouldn't say that. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So that's the point I want to make. The Jews became custodians of the Old Testament. That's what it says right there in Romans 3. Entrusted with the oracles of God. God chose to give the originals to the Jews. They became custodians of it. And they took the role quite seriously. They guarded Old Testament scripture with extreme care and precision. And they had a group of people called scribes. You've heard them, of uh, scribes and Pharisees. This particular group of scribes were called Soferim. And the Soferim were given responsibility to copy and meticulously care for the sacred text of Scripture so that it could be handed down or transmitted correctly, copy by copy. To assure accuracy, later scribes, known as Mazorites, developed a number of precise and strict rules to ensure that every copy they made was an exact reproduction of the original. So they kept minute statistics as a means of guarding against error. Here's a sampling of what I mean. Uh, 
In the Hebrew Bible, uh, at the book of Leviticus, which is part of the Torah, verse 8 of chapter 8, in the margin of the Hebrew Bible, and I, I don't imagine uh, anyone here has the Hebrew Bible, but in the margin of the Hebrew Bible, near Leviticus 8.8, 8, there is a reference that this verse is the middle verse of the entire Torah. You see, they counted from beginning to end when they copied to ensure that there would be an equal number of verses on this side of Leviticus 8.8 8, as on this side. And if the middle didn't hit at Leviticus 8.8, 8, one of the scribes said, oops, and they had to go back and redo the whole thing. Now it gets even more Precise. There's a note in the Hebrew Bible at Leviticus chapter 10 verse 16 saying that the Hebrew word darash, D-A-R-A-S-H, darash is the middle word in the Torah. So not only did they count the middle verse, they even precisely identified the word which if they copied correctly should have been smack dab in the middle. It's the word darash. Then the note at Leviticus 11.42 says the Vav. Vav is a Hebrew letter, like, a, like W. The Vav in the Hebrew word of Leviticus 11.42 is the letter that is in the middle, smack dab in the middle of the Torah. So if it was not the W, it was an M, boom, they have to go back to point A and recopy. At the end of each book copied are statistics such as the total number of verses. For instance, the total number of verses recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, they would count, is 955. The total in the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is 5,845. Uh, the total number of words is 97,856. Go home to see if I'm right. Count it. The total number of letters is 400,945. So if this poor Masoretic scribe got 900,486, man, he just added a word to holy sacred scripture. And Romans 13 tells us the Jews were given custodianship of it all, took it quite seriously. I didn't say they obeyed it, but they knew it was God's word Anyway, and so they precisely counted every, have you heard the expression, jot and tittle. That's every point of grammar. That's every letter. That's every vowel point they counted. And so God knew what he was doing to entrust the custodianship of the Old Testament to the Jews because they attached all kinds of significance to it, even magical, numerical significance to it. And so even though it didn't pierce their heart, sadly, it's a shame. Nonetheless, they saw it to be entrusted to them. And so the transmission 
process from the originals down to the copies is astoundingly accurate. There is no transmission process as accurate as this. I guess my point is, is you're reading the Old Testament. You're on solid ground. You don't have to wonder about how discrepant it is from the originals because God entrusted it to the Jews and we don't mess around. Every jot and tittle was copied and counted so that it would be a precise reproduction of the original. Let me give you a for instance, have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, a lot of people have. Do you know when they were found? How about that? It's kind of a bonus question. Whoa, that was pretty good for a woman. Man. Wow. Holy moly. Okay, 1940. The Dead Sea Scrolls indeed were discovered in 1947. And they're copies, the Dead Sea Scrolls are copies of the Old Testament dating from the second century before the time of the Lord. Second century B.C. They are copies of all the books of the Old Testament except for which book? Esther. That's a story for another day. All the books of the Old Testament in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember an Arab shepherd boy threw a stone into a cave near a place called Qumran. If you go to Israel, you can visit it. Heard a sound, went in there, and in these jars found these priceless Dead Sea Scrolls. Didn't know what he had. Anyway, 1947, the discovery was made. Copies of every Old Testament book dating from the second century BC. Now, what's so astounding about this discovery is that prior to this being discovered, the uh, the the earliest copy uh, of the Old Testament scriptures w- was about a thousand years older, <laughs> about nine hundred and forty something A.D. So you have this huge gap between the second century BC copies and the only ones then in existence until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered about 1,000 years. So what do you think the archaeologists did? They took all these copies, these now very early second century BC ones, and they put them right alongside these 1,000 year later ones. And what do you think they found? Almost... 100% correspondence, thousand-year gap. Well, what happened to the other manuscripts? Why did we have only the Dead Sea Scrolls and then this other thing from about 945? Well, here's what uh, the Jews did. Out of respect for decaying copies of the Bible, they would give them a burial. They actually would do it. It was a ceremony, quite a holy ceremony to show respect for the scriptures. So if it became marred or the pages got bent or frayed or the parchment wore out, they would actually bury them. And that's why we don't have any more copies. That's why the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in this marvelous climate, dry, you see, not humid like here in Texas, preserving them intact down to this very day. So so you have a thousand-year gap between these copies and these copies, and you have astounding correspondence between the two. Now, I tell you that because don't let people put doubts in your mind when you're reading Old Testament scripture. You are reading divinely inspired, 
inerrant, reliable revelation from Almighty God Himself through human authors. So what about the New Testament? I think I demonstrated to you the reliability of the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Is that reliable? Well, I can't actually use these two words here, but I'll do it anyway. You bet! Yeah, they're reliable. Look, in existence now, now we have over 5,000 full Greek manuscripts. That means of the entire New Testament. How many books in the New Testament? 27, I think, is what it is. So we have 5,000 full manuscripts in Greek of all 27 books of the New Testament. In addition, 10,000 full Latin manuscripts of the New Testament. Over 9,000 other full manuscripts, early copies of the New Testament. And we have over 24,000 early copies of portions of the New Testament in existence today. Now, what's so overwhelming about that is, folks, there is no classic literature that has that much corroboration, and yet no one questions that. I mean, how many of you went to school and studied Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, you know, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey and all that? But I never, I don't remember in any of the classes I was in, some kid standing up and saying, Mr. Professor, how do I know this is really actually accurately the writings of Homer. I mean, you just take it for granted. But let me tell you something. The manuscript evidence, the volumes of copies for which uh, the New Testament finds support far exceeds the manuscript copies in existence for any other classic literature. For instance, there are only 643 copies today for Homer's Iliad. In the entire world, 643 copies. But no one questions it. No one says, is it reliable? Is it accurate? There's only 10 copies in existence today for Caesar's Gallic War. It's a series of books. Only eight copies for the histories of Thucydides and Herodotus. And yet Herodotus, you know him, Greek historian, good night. People quote him left and right. Nobody says, well, gee, how do I know he really said it? How do I know it's without error? And not only that, the manuscript copies we have for the New Testament uh, are much closer to the time of the events they record than these other manuscript copies. Now, let me tell you this. Can I tell you something? When you've heard the greatest story ever told, <laughs> and by faith it takes root in your life, you find out Jesus is... Everything he said he was, your Lord and Savior. When you yield and bow before him and you take him as the one who provided atonement for your sin, when you become a new creature in Christ, you don't need all these facts and figures. Something inside of you <laughs> tells you, you are born anew. And he has taken up his abode in your life. So this is not... Uh, for those of you who are already, I think, redeemed, it may be for some who are thinking about it. How do these Christians, oh, they're nice people, generally speaking, but they're so naive. They've made this terrible blind leap from logic to faith. No! 
It's very logical to believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God. It's very reasonable to apprehend its truth as being just that, true. It's illogical to call it into question. You can reject it out of hand if you choose to, but that is a very intellectually difficult position to defend in light of all of the evidence pointing to the reliability of Old and New Testament Scripture. But still, we're almost going to close here. Without the originals, how do we know we have reliable Scripture today? Well, there's something called the science of textual criticism. And it's called a science because it are one. It's no guesswork. The science of textual criticism. And here's how it works. Imagine a very, very long table that just extended itself way beyond the confines uh, of this room. A very, very long table. And on it was opened up and spread out the thousands of copies of New Testament documents, which I mentioned to you we have in existence today. So all of these thousands of New Testament manuscripts are laid out on this uh, extraordinarily long table. And then experts, scientists, practitioners of textual criticism examine all the texts. And when they do, they find discrepancies. There are discrepancies from one copy to the other. They're called variants because one text varies from the other. Now, I don't want to rock your faith, but this has actually been done, and they've come up with about 150,000 discrepancies or variants amongst the copies of the New Testament. So, so you might be saying, well, then how in the world could I put confidence in the New Testament if there are 150,000 variations? Oh, but when you look to the 150,000 variants, when you compare them through the science of textual criticism, you find something very noticeable and significant, and it's this, not one major doctrine of our faith, not one of our fundamentals, our foundations, not one bedrock core belief uh, of what we stand on is ever called into question. The variants have to do with, in some cases, a letter missing in a word or words reversed. So one copy may say Christ Jesus and the other might say Jesus Christ. And when you total those all up, 150,000. Good night. Look how God has so superintended the text that not one major point of doctrine is in question in spite of all of these manuscripts uh, being laid out on this infinitely long table. So, so how does... How, how does the science of textual criticism work? How can we tell that we have a good translation today? So, so let me, uh, let me uh, demonstrate. Steve, can you come here for a second? Because you were dozing off. So I, 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 and then Charlie, could, could you come? Could, and brother, could I borrow you just, just for a second? And then I need one. Uh, one okay. Brenda, you're going to get up here one way or the other, aren't you? Come on over here, Brenda. Okay, I, I just want to just stand over here, if you don't mind, for one second. Thank you for doing this. 
you people. They don't teach you. They're sitting in the front. So, so now here's the deal. These people represent, let's just say, um, four different uh, copies of the original. There was an original text. We don't have it anymore. So these are four copies of it. Okay, and, and so, so Brenda, this is, this is what your copy says. Your copy says, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. So, so, so Brenda, I, w- I would like you to repeat that. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is, the savior is the Savior of the whole world. Of the whole world. Thank you, Brenda. And, and, and Brother Charles, you're the second copy, and your uh, copy says, uh, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. So would you say that? Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Okay. So, so copy one reads, we don't have the original, you understand, these are just copies. Copy one reads, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Copy two reads, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. So, so, so far, these two are consistent. Now, copy three, Stephen. Yours, uh, your copy says, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. So could you repeat that? Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Thank you, Stephen. So, so far, look, three copies thus far are examined on this big, long table by scientists of, text, of the text. And they're finding that these we do, they don't have the originals. You know, we make no bones about it. Nobody has it. What well, isn't it a good thing we don't have the originals? Do you know what the world would do? Worship paper <laughs> instead of author. So that's why God cannot entrust those things to us. Good night. We'd build a big old building and shrine. People wait in lines to touch it and kiss it. Oh my goodness! It's supposed to get in you. It's supposed to. It reminds me when I was a, can I, I was a chaplain in the army and uh, I was handing out, uh, thank God for the Gideons, Gideon New Testaments. It was a um, military version. It was green to go with the uniforms that we had. And so we were uh, uh, out doing field duty, and I had like a ton of these little Gideon New Testaments. And I would hand it out to guys, and we'd do Bible study and all this kind of stuff when they were down. It was, it was uh, tanks. And so when we were not blowing up stuff, we, we would do Bible study. So, so, so this guy kept coming over to me, Chaplain, could I have another one of those New Testaments? Chaplain, could I have another? And I, yeah, I'm glad to give them to you. What are you doing all these? You handing them out? He said, oh, no, no, no. I got four of them right here, and I got another three of them right here. And he was using them as padding, as armor kind of a deal. So I had to explain to him, no, no, no. See, it's the contents of that book that will uh, provide for you your eternal protection. So, but anyway, so uh, that had nothing to do with... Well, we're talking. So, so you have three, three copies. They all say Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. And, and now, brother, your copy number four. Your copy says Christ Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. So would you say that, please? Christ Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Okay, thank you. Now, let's do this in unison. Uh, uh, once again, uh, 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 just, just tell us what your copy says on three, okay? One, two, three... Okay, so which one of these stands out? The guy, number four. 
on the so so you're a scientist you do not have the originals you're trying to figure out however which of the copy because there's a variant this is one of the variants one of the 150,000 variants the words are reversed don't you think you can be reasonably sure reasonably sure that you're, you're getting pretty close to the original simply by seeing 75%, three out of four of the existing copies you have read one way. The exception to the rule is the one that probably is a scribal error. The guy was tired. He's copying scripture. He reversed the words. It doesn't, no one's going to lose their salvation over the issue. Don't worry about any of the variants. None is serious. But even though they're not very serious, you can still get back. So the scientists who do this all the time, scholars, I'm really simplifying this quite a bit, but the ones who did this all the time tell us, if you have a good translation of the Bible, we'll let you know weeks ahead if you do, and I'll bet everyone here does. I'll bet everyone here does. If you have a good translation, you can know that what you have is probably 99.9% precisely a reproduction of the original. And where it's not, it's one of the variants where a letter is missing or a word is reversed. Can you see how God has so superintended his written propositional truth that we can be real sure about it. Thank you so much, folks, for participating. I really appreciate your help. Thank you for doing that. Look, the Bible has always come under fire, and I'll tell you why. If I wanted to undermine uh, the faith of a Christian, I would not attack the Lord Jesus Christ. I would attack the Bible. And, and I would t- say to the Christian, what you know about this Jesus who you say to be your Lord and Savior is here, but the Bible is full of error. And I would start uh, trying to sow seeds of doubt. Um, you don't have to be obnoxious. And you don't have to be arrogant, but you can be sure <laughs> based on the doctrine of inspiration that what you're reading is true. It's without error. So what are we supposed to do with it now? We're supposed to trust it and obey it. I hear a song coming. (laughs) Listen, based on the doctrine of inspiration, which confirms the doctrine of inerrancy, I don't have to question the Bible anymore. It has been scrutinized by ones much more intelligent than me. And the science of textual criticism has revealed beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of Old and New Testament documents. Therefore, it's left to me simply to trust and obey. So let's stand together and we'll sing just the chorus to that great hymn. But do you mind if I change the words I don't want to tamper with inspired scripture, but you let me change the words of a hymn just for a second. You know how the words are trust and obey for there's no other way to be what? Yeah, but I don't think happiness is the purpose of life. If it is, a lot of us are missing out on it. 
I think the purpose of life, I found this in inspired, inerrant scripture, is not happiness, it's holiness. So do you mind if we sing trust and obey, for there's no other way to be holy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Listen, the word of God is trustworthy, and now ours. It's real simple. We just have to do what it says. Let's sing together. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be holy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. So, Lord Jesus, this is, this is our, it really is our desire. We, we don't want to treat it the way unsaved Jews have with a sort of respect and yet without a submission to the content thereof. Your your word is like a fire and it is like a a hammer. It melts our pride and it shatters our self-confidence and it, well, it could usher us by grace into your very presence. It's milk and meat and nourishment and sustenance and though we have not seen you we surely can believe you and know you more and more really through the pages through the sentences through the words because each word is inspired of scripture and of course lord jesus you would not have inspired a product filled with error we do that you do not You've inspired it, therefore you have protected its transmission, therefore it is inerrant. The minute we allow for error in the Bible, then it's left up to us to decide what has to go and what should stay. Oh no, all scripture is inspired by you, Lord Jesus, and profitable for us. So put it within us to trust it and obey it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Wonderful to see you. Ask God to give you a chance to tell the greatest story ever told this week, and we'll see you Sunday.